Welcome once again to another fantastic episode of the Business Creators Radio Show. We help business creators like you win at the game of business and marketing so you can thrive from your intersection of your brilliance and your passion and make a difference for your community, market, and audience. Please take a moment and visit our website, www.businesscreatorsradioshow.com. You'll find hundreds of episodes covering a breadth and depth of topics relevant to you as a business creator and links to subscribe via your favorite network so you get fresh episodes delivered straight to you. And now, here's today's episode. Let's get started. My name is Adam Homie. I am your host, and I am honored by your wise decision once again to tune in and invest in yourself today. The Business Creators Radio Show goes where you go. And where is it do you have these mastermind conversations and aha moments? You may sometimes hear a little bit of ambient noise in the background. It could be a bird chirping. It could be a vehicle driving by. It could be laughter from the next table. It could be the hustle and bustle of being outdoors. It certainly rarely happens in a sterile office, and it certainly, to me, does not happen in a soundproof studio, which is why we don't have one. Today, I'm broadcasting to you from the couch of my apartment here in Las Vegas, known to some as the hottest city in the world. I'm joined by my feline supervisor, Princess Stella Juliana, and I'm sure Princess Alessandra will be joining us soon as they tend to cuddle around me every single moment that I'm indoors. Today, we're going to have a conversation with somebody who I have found in our green room conversation to be extremely interesting. And our topic is going to be on getting clear on what you want from the business long term and why. And there are many aspects and wrinkles to that. We have our time that we have together. And I'm looking forward to a round-robin conversation with our guests. We're going to touch on a number of different topics. So this episode is one of those ones you can mark when you subscribe to our show as being a corner piece of general knowledge with in-depth examples that help you with your long-term vision, your long-term goals, and your long-term success. So our guest... Our guest is Ryan Tansom, very interesting person, and he is the founder of Arcona, which created the Intentional Growth Framework, which helps owners grow the value of their company with the end in mind through educational training, fractional CFO services, and strategic planning. Ryan also hosts the popular Intentional Growth Podcast that has 250-plus episodes, 360,000 downloads, and guests like Gina Wickman, John Werlow, and the editors of HBR and Inc. Magazine. So, Ryan Tansom, come on in. The weather's fine. Adam, how are you, sir? Couldn't be better if you paid me a million dollars, but you should try it <laughs> once just to see if that's the case. <laughs> I love it. I love it. And I got my... Uh... My coworker Luna, the Black Lab, on my side of the wire. So I've got my, nice. uh, I've got my support on my side. Hell yeah, hell yeah, and we and we all know that we're actually the pets. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're just we're just a, a character in their movie. I think that's probably pretty, uh, probably pretty, pretty much, accurate. <laughs> pretty much, I'm I'm permitted to live here because I have opposable thumbs. <laughs> Yeah, just as, as long as I wake up. Yeah, like I have to wake up and feed them so and let them out so that way they can do whatever they want. I, I like that. So every once in a while, their life seems pretty good. <laughs> so I read off a piece of your official bio. I didn't want to get carried away. Just the part that I shared with our listeners is so impressive. I'm not sure if I'm worthy to be here. And this is my show. So what we typically do here before we dive in and our conversation is going to be somewhat wide ranging, just depending on how far we go and what avenues we find most interesting. But tell us a bit in your own words about your journey and what's brought you to where you are today, serving business creators from your intersection of your brilliance and your passion. Um, yeah, like you said, uh, first of all, I love a wide variety of topics. So I can, you can jive whatever direction you want to go as we go through this, but I'll try and be succinct um, with my the the overview of the story. So my I grew up in an entrepreneurial household, Adam. My dad, um, he mortgaged our house, bought a couple hundred grand worth of old comp- copiers back in the early 90s. And 
uh, the, pretty much I say the rest is history because he grew that and I worked in other business uh, most of my life. And then um, it was right around uh, the financial crisis. Uh, I decided to join full time. And that year, he, he, my dad had been out uh, distant from the company. And so when I joined and the financial crisis happened, we had some banking issues where like a lot of people did uh, very healthy business, but the banking structure was not correct, uh, correctly set up. And pretty much essentially happened, Adam is a uh, pulled my dad back in, got him a little bit more engaged. And then for the next call it five and a half, six years, uh, helped turn around the business. So new ERP system turned around about 60% of the employees, sold a couple branches, turned uh Manage IT, built out the managed IT services and software uh, automation, really essentially becoming that B2B technology service provider that a lot of people are familiar with today. And the uh, what happened was, Adam, is at that point, and my dad had, you know, kind of lost some of the passion for the business. I mean, obviously liked, uh, liked the flexibility and financial uh, benefits of owning a company, but it was like, you know, what do I want from this? And we had this proverbial Groundhog's Day conversation of, what do we want to do with the business? I want to sell, not sell. And like, and at that point I was running the business and essentially, you know, in order to reinvest in the business, which like we were, it takes a lot of cash. And we had different visions of what we wanted to do with the business. He wanted the more distributions and I wanted to keep reinvesting. Couldn't figure out how to reconcile our visions and what we wanted for the business, even though we're great friends, you know, family, whatever, all, all the things above. Couldn't figure out how to, how to, tie both of what we wanted from the business and why with the value creation that we wanted in order to get everything that we both wanted, we felt trapped. So what happened was we sold the business in 2014 um, to a local competitor. Um, but a lot of our employees are still there eight year, eight and a half, almost nine years later. And, but the, the nature of the deal was they only needed about 35% of the business or the 35% of the, um, of the employees or something like that. Very difficult day for me because I had to go back and let everybody know that we had sold and, you know, only a third of the employees were going to be going with the company. And it was, it was a strategic sale. So it was, a, it was a lot of back office synergy redundancies. Yeah. Long story short, Adam, I was very, very, um, it was emotional, man. And not only because they had different, different visions of what they wanted to do with the business and rightfully so it was their company that they bought. And, uh, then I had I went from running a twenty million dollar business at twenty seven to sitting in a cube next to an intern. I'm like, what the hell was this? Paid a lot of taxes, paid a lot of debt. I'm like, hmm, I feel like there could have been a different solution to this. And after going through and kind of flopping around for a while, Adam, like consulting, and I got actually got into finance for a while, getting my securities license, really trying to understand money. And what happened was, Adam, I was like, you know what? You know, there's all these different places I could have gone and landed, like being EOS implementer, investment banking, private equity, you name the different places I could have gone. I was like, you know, no, why is it that this is a thing? And I read this book, uh, Finish Big by Bo Burlingham, who he's been on my show a couple of times. He also wrote Small Giants. And he said, you need to, the people that are happy with the next hit know who they are, what they want from their business and why. And then he goes into 300 pages of why that's a thing. And I was like, holy shit, is he right? <laughs> Excuse yeah. my language. And I just was like, well, what do you do about that? So Adam, what happened was I went on this journey to help people learn how the, the world of valuations, value growth, exits work. And it's all predicated on figure out what you want and then use your vehicle or your business as a vehicle to create wealth, enjoy work and make an impact. And align that with what you want. So we we built out a training program called Intentional Growth with the Five Principles, and then uh, we can unpack that if you want. And then what happened was after COVID, we had just hundreds of people go through our training, and people kept gravitating towards the financials as the strategic roadmap to see where they are and how to actually accomplish that. Because at the end of the day, it all falls under the numbers. So it went from like kind of hypothetical, like here's all the education to rolling up your sleeves and getting stuff done to actually make the things happen. So essentially our Kona, our business right now is training and fractional CFO services to help people grow value and honestly accomplish whatever they want. Like, and this will kind of loop us all the way back to your first uh, uh, comment about figuring out what you want. <laughs> I do all these like Vistage workshops and EO or whatever these uh, keynotes and workshops or these peer groups. And, you know, they're very successful entrepreneurs, man. And like, this one woman after the three hour workshop, goes, 
so you're just saying I need to figure out who I am and what I want for my business and why then I can build a plan to go get there. I'm like, you got it. Like we can build a plan to get whatever you want as long as you got enough time and capital and energy. But if you don't know what the heck you want, like how are we supposed to build a plan to go get it? Well, certainly now that's all great. And I really appreciate you sharing with us. So there are a few areas that you shared with me in the green room that you would like us to go through. And a big one that I think comes up for folks, particularly if one of their potential goals for their business is to sell it or cash in their chips at some point comes from the valuation of the business. So these first couple questions are going to be about how we increase or adjust the value of a business. And the first is, how do you create a strategic plan to increase the value of a business? And I would say particularly in this day and age where uh, pretty much any prediction is good for exactly as long as it takes you to spell it out. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what, what's Mike Tyson's quote is, everybody's got a plan until they get punched in the face. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, so... Uh, yeah, let's, I'm trying to think of how to, uh, we could, we could, there's a lot of meat on that bone. So how do we create a strategic plan in, in order to grow the value of the business? So I'm going to start with one is the value of a business is based on how sustainable, predictable, and transferable that cash flow of that company is. It's a financial asset. So just like your real estate, you know, your real estate investment or, uh, your bond, if your bond actually has any return and yield or the uh-huh. any public company that you invest in, the reason you own it is it so it grows in value, period. And the way that things grow in value is by having more sustainable, predictable, and transferable cash flow. So Adam, I would like to know if I wanted to buy your company, what is the probability that there's going to be cash flow there tomorrow, at the end of the quarter, next year, and two years from now? I mean, and tell me how that's going to be done. And so- there's two components and there's a lot of there's a lot of different ways to what we call de-risk that cash flow to make it more valuable. And when you de-risk that cash flow, it actually increases the multiple. Again, I'm going to park that over there for a sec. Um because there's a lot behind what creates multiples, but there's the there's the cash flow of the company and again before another concept that I like to introduce into this Adam is in order to do anything that you're talking about, you have to understand the concept of the difference between your ownership role and your management role. Your management role is what you get a W-2 paycheck for or guaranteed payments, whatever your structure is, for doing a job in that business. Your ownership role is what you expect from that investment and that asset, whether it's distributions or whether it's reinvest for growth, but you have an ownership hat on. And when I, when right. I the, the best example I like to give is, you know, Adam, I don't know if you've got any Apple stock, you might in your 401k, if you've got an S&P 500, I don't know if you work at the genius bar. I don't. Yeah. Like, so like you can own a stock, but not actually have a job at the company. And that their whole private equity industry is predicated on that entire thesis. Most privately held entrepreneurs don't understand that because they conflate their roles together. So once you separate those two and say, okay, Here's this asset, this company that has cash flow, and it's got a certain degree of risk to that cash flow. How do we grow the cash flow, the size? So, like in this case, we're talking about normalized EBITDA, but just let's say cash flow, unless you want to dive into that. But we have cash flow, and then there's a multiple, a number that is like how many years of that cash flow is someone willing to give you? And that year, the amount of years is based on how much risk it is. So, if it's a three, it's three years of cash flow, but if it's a seven, it means that, hey, we have a lot of confidence that this company is going to be around and that this investment is going to pay off. And so I wanted to, I, I can pause because then we can talk about what to, how to, how do we build a strategic plan that actually grows the value? But I wanted to take a pause and do those concepts make sense? Dollars and cents. So the way, here's what I like to say, Adam, is I've never met an entrepreneur that can't tell one hell of a story of where their company's been and what the potential is. Not one. Everybody's got an amazing story and it's, it's there's a lot of blood, sweat, tears, and passion that go into it. Yeah. <laughs> so let's say, let's say I wanted to buy your company and you're telling me your story of where you've been, what the potential is and all this stuff. And then I'm like, great, I'm, I'm bought in, Adam. Now prove it. <laughs> Like the proof, it comes down to the numbers, man. And so 
what happens? What's a, what's a strategic plan without the numbers? It's just a hope and a dream. And you can, you can even take a strategic plan and roll it into a system like traction EOS or OKRs or scaling up Rockefeller habits. I don't care, but like you can, you have a strategic plan that is deciding what markets you're going into, who, what products and services, what, what's your ideal customer base, what's your flywheel, the ANSAS matrix. There's a lot of different strategic planning methods, but you've made tr- trade-off decisions based on where you're going to spend your time and energy and capital to have the highest winning impact or the highest uh, highest uh, impactful position and competitive uh, competitive advantage. Then you say, how are we going to fund that? And what does success, success look like? You need to roll that strategic plan into your financials so you can figure out how to fund it and how it's going to grow the value of your company by, in, by looking at the numbers. Yeah. Yeah. So with that, with that, uh, you mentioned to me earlier that there are eight functional areas or value drivers in a business. And if you could tell us about some of those, that'd be great. So this concept of the eight functional areas, Adam, came. Um, so it's principle four of our marketing, not of our marketing, sorry, of our, of yeah. our the intentional growth framework. So we have five principles. The first one is your drivers. What do you want from the business and why? Second one is your financial targets. There are three of them. And it's really mainly understanding how it is the business and the net, like what it's actually worth after everything, uh, taxes and everything, if you were to sell it, what's it worth to you in your personal financial situation? Third principle is exit options. So you understand when and how you could monetize this business. So it gets to principle four. And I, I, I give that context, um, Adam, because these go in order. So like when we focus on growing value, now we, if we know where we want to go, the concept of these eight functional areas is that there, your business has a certain amount of risk, right? And I don't care if you're an e-commerce Shopify site, if you're a, blo- a food blog, if you're a, a steel fabricator, if you're a consulting firm, if you're a construction home remodeler, if you're commercial construction, it's an organization that ki- it's a it's a machine that kicks out cash. Period. People and things that kick out cash that do things repeatedly. So there was this. Uh, I, I give you all that because I don't care what um like if you have if you had a million dollars in EBITDA or cash flow and there and someone else had a million dollars in EBITDA or cash flow and they're both 10 million dollars in revenue and they're both a million dollars one one company might go for over double the value of the other one based on how sustainable predictable and transferable that company's cash flow is so there is a system that I was certified under that uh I'm actually met my business partner Pat in called the value opportunity profile that assesses these eight functional areas. Honestly, I don't, I don't care what system you use. You could use the value builder system, the VOP, there's core value. Every private equity firm has got their own due diligence checklist of essentially assessing, I'll give you the eight functional areas is um, so it's planning, leadership, uh, legal finance. Uh, I'm going to get them all. But I don't memorize these eight because these eight aren't mine. Yeah. Uh, but the, uh, let me pull it up real quick here. Um, so planning, leadership, sales, marketing, people, ops, finance, and legal. The point is every company has these eight functional areas. Like I said, whatever industry you have, you're going to be doing planning. You're going to have sales and marketing and people and ops, finance, legal, and leadership. So then it's saying, okay, how good is my leadership team? Are they rock stars? How good is my strategic plan? Is it written down? Do we have a formal strategic planning process? How about operations? Do we have systems and procedures? Do we have good data? Do we have good accounting systems and ERP systems? Are our financials clean, timely, and accurate? The more they are, Adam, the more sustainable, predictable, and transferable that cash flow is. Great. Great. Well, the next thing I'd like to move on to, of course, are financial targets. And since we're already speaking about increasing value and valuation, um, and some of this may be a bit of a reiteration. How are companies actually valued? That's one of the great mysteries that we've been chasing around here. I've had my businesses valuated. When I tell people the number that my businesses could potentially sell for, they find it amazing that I think it's worth that much. But no, it's not me that thinks it's worth that much. It's somebody else who does. Who would be that person? Curious. Is it like a valuation advisor or a buyer? Who? I had a valuation advisor actually evaluate it. And, uh, although my ventures seem small, the value is basically, I can summarize it in one sentence, 
somebody else could go through a few pages of my websites, put their name and their picture on it and pick up right where I leave off. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's a ready-made machine. It has, it has a product. It has a proprietary process. It has team members in place who already know, who already know the plan and can implement it. Somebody could just pick up managing right where I leave off. They could even take my book and publish a version that says, as interpreted by, and simply add a chapter to it. <laughs> I, I love it, man. And these like, are just, these are just some of the, these yeah. are just some of the points of valuation that they found. So like that is all leading right into sustainable, predictable, transferable cash flow. And so the way, like, there's a, there's a podcast series that we just did too, if people, and uh, we can give the links for the listeners, but is demystifying business valuations. And there's, I want to layer on a, a concept, Adam, before we can dive into as much financials. I can geek out into this stuff till tomorrow if you wanted to. Yeah. Uh, the, 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 to start with a concept first, there's this concept of intrinsic financial value. And I compare that to strategic transaction value. So intrinsic financial value is the risk of, or is the value of the business as it stands today based on the risk of the cash flow. So technically what you're doing is a discounted cash flow valuation, but essentially you're saying, what is the present value of the future stream of cash? And you're going to discount it by a, a number to get to that present value today. You haven't sold the business, right? So there's one thing that I love debunking and just beating people over the head with is you can actually know the value of your company as it stands today based on the risk of the cash flow. You don't have to wait 10 years, put your head in the sand and then pop up and be like, I want out. And I'll only know what my company's worth when someone's willing to write me a check. There's truth to that because someone will have to write you a check and then you will actually prove and solidify that value. But you can know the value the entire way on the way there. And if you focus on de-risking that cash flow and growing it, then you're going to pre-engineer a valuation that's way greater because you're intentionally doing that over the course of a decade. And what you can rest assured is you can track and measure and monitor the value of that intrinsic cash flow today. And then you can go and grow the company. And then the I'm going to compare that to the strategic transaction value, Adam, where there's a lot of reasons where there would be a premium or a discount to that intrinsic financial value. And by the way, the entire private equity industry, Adam, knows that this is the thing because they go buy a company and then they grow that company for the course of five to seven years. It's not public. And then they, they're tracking and measuring, measuring that cash flow all the time, the entire way. And then they know how, to, how much to sell it based on the internal rate of return that they need. So my point is they're like this is not just hocus pocus bs like people do this all all day long but when you compare the intrinsic value to the transaction value someone might buy your company for reasons above and beyond just the cash flow as an investment strategic buyers love the i mean my, i sold our company to a strategic buyer with uh, my dad and i did and, and there was a redundancy of all the back office they were going to sell different products and services to the current customers that we had tons of upside, hiring people, all the different things. Someone might say, I'm willing to pay a premium for X, Y, Z reasons, eliminating a competitor, crossing all those things that we talked about. The, op- or the, the, the opposite of that would be, Adam, is we have clients that are you know multi-generational families. They don't need the money from the sale. So in principle too, like what are your financial targets? What do you need the company to be worth? They've already got enough money. So what yeah. they do is they go to the IRS and you can discount the value of a company based on lack of liquidity and lack of control up to 35%. And then you wrap it up and you gift it to, you, you gift the shares at a discount to the kids or a manager or whoever. My point is there's a lot of, it depends, but it all depends based on when something happens and it, w- until something happens, you measure and monitor the value of the company and the cash flow until there's an actual event that you want. Yeah. Yeah, that's and you know I what I find what I find uh, interesting about this valuation thing and I know there's a science to it that's in some ways a little bit beyond what I know off the top of my head is that uh to a degree at least not hugely but to a degree the value of a company is in the eye of the beholder. Um not the intrinsic value. Not the intrinsic value. No, it's and this is this is exactly your you, the strategic transaction value when the deal is consummated between two people and the EIN number sh- shifts or asset sale or whatever the heck it was, 
that's when yes the, like it's in the eyes of the, the of the buyer but uh, like do uh, you want me to get geeky <laughs> i can get geeky please 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 so we're for so, so the multiple people i mean people have barely barely anybody knows where the hell these multiples come from They're like well my buddy got uh-huh. 10 times revenue and it's like well did they first of all is the question second of all were they a SaaS company that raised a bunch of money oh and by the way you had 10 partners you, you sold it for $10 million. You had 11 million in debt and you walked away still with that. Like who cares what you sold it for? And like, so it's really, I only care about how much money would go in my bank account. And my, my point about this is the, the multiple is, is it's driven by industry and industry sector and size. Those are, you know, and there's a company called GF data that I have on my podcast that gives data based on private equity deals. So there's a little bit more transparency as far as like what's going on. But the, uh, the, the multiple is the inverse of this thing called the weighted average cost of capital, which is essentially the, the, the risk percentage. So like, you know, in a cap rate, I don't know if you, if you talk about real estate much, but like people assume uh, like get to a cap rate in real estate based on the risk of the cash flow. Like, do they have leases? Is it in a dilapidated area? All that kind of stuff. And the business is the same thing. So they're trying to figure out how do we get to this discount, uh, understanding how risky it is. Well, it's the, it, they call it the buildup method, Adam. And so it starts with public companies. I'm sorry. It starts with the US treasury, the risk-free rate. So obviously, and we're sitting here on Wednesday, July 27th, and the Fed just jacked up the rates again. So the yeah. risk-free rate is going up. So that's a published rate. The second published rate as part of the weighted average cost of capital is called equities. And so equities, if you're gonna, if you and I, if, if you and I were investors and we wanted to put a hundred grand into something, put a hundred grand into treasuries, it's risk-free. So we're we're getting the rate that's essentially tied to the lack of risk that we're taking. If we wanted to put it in the S&P 500 in equities, we're taking more risk, right? So then there's an additional amount of return that we need for the risk that we're taking. So let's say it was like 3% risk-free rate, and then you added 6%. So now we're at 9%. Then what you do, and I'm I'm not going to be able to track all all my math here, so I'm going to try and get across the concepts. But after risk-free rate and equities, then you go to the size premium. So you have to have a, a premium as an investor. If I could go invest in Apple and expect a 7% return or 9% or whatever the published rate is, if I'm going to invest in your privately held company, I need a premium because it's not, I can't, I can't just trade it on a daily basis. Those three, those three uh, rates are published, Adam. And that's what these valuation advisors are doing. Then they get to this thing called company specific risk which is what is the risk of your operations? And that has a range of like two to 25%. And if you're at 2%, meaning you're, you're not risky at all, that's really good. And, and that's not really going to happen. But there's a, my whole point is there's this huge range that could wildly swing the value of the company. So let's say we get to a 20% uh, weighted average cost of capital. You do one divided by that 20% risk and you get a five multiple. So the entire valuation process, you know, three of the numbers are three of the numbers are published, and one of them is going to be highly dependent based on your company and the risk of that cash flow. And that's why when in our training, we teach that there's two companies, 10 million in revenue, a million in EBITDA, one goes for five million, the other one goes for three. Why is that? Well, one has highly concentration and one customer crappy management team, no accounting system, no good financials, you know, all these things that dra- drag down that multiple because that com- that company specific risk is higher. That yeah. Make sense? Yeah. Dollars and cents. Sure, sure. So, uh so I guess uh you know, let's think ahead here because as I mentioned there are folks that I know and we have listeners who are in entrepreneurship and creating ventures with the idea that they will eventually uh, sell out or cash in their chips. So what I'd like to discover from you is in your experience, what are some of the different ways to actually exit a business and what are the differences between these different approaches? So in our principle three of exit options, um, what my partner and I did when we were building this is 
I mean, because there's an infinite amount of combinations, right? Like, but like, what do we do with the infinite amount? We do nothing because it's too much for our brains to compute. So what we did is we took and we categorized essentially into five buckets of ways to exit based on these 17 attributes. And like, essentially almost like think about like categorizing animals, right? (laughs) Dogs versus cats, et cetera. (laughs) We're bringing back our our combo. But so what the, what the five are that we've categorized The first one is internal and the types of internal are managers, family members, partners. The second exit option is what we call acquisition entrepreneur, also Uh also known as search funds. So someone that's like a rock star CEO that's got some uh, professional money behind them that wants to go buy a company and, and grow that for their own wealth purposes. The third exit option is what we call, not what we call, they're called ESOPs, Employee Stock Ownership Plans, where you're selling the business to an ESOP trust and then the uh, employees are beneficial owners of that trust. The fourth exit option is private equity, professional investors that want a rate of return based on the money that they raise and it's their fiduciary obligation. You know, there's a lot of different flavors of private equity. And, you know, I would consider family offices or like Brent B. Shores uh, permanent equity. And there's a lot of different flavors, but essentially private equity, meaning we're buying this company for a rate of return. And then yeah. the fifth one is strategic buyers, like the competitive, you know, the competitor that wants to take you out of the synergy, you know, the back office synergies that we're going to roll up. And, you know, a lot of strategics could also be potentially backed by private equity. But so again, just to clarify or to say it again, internal Acquisition entrepreneur, ESOPs, private equity, and strategics. We don't talk about public uh, public offerings, Adam. That's a thing, but we stay out of the IPO range or out of the IPO industry. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. So uh, with that, there are you know you've uh, you know you mentioned some different things, and uh, what about family transitions or internal? transitions that can be an interesting place to go <laughs> yes sir uh-huh. yes sir. <laughs> yes sir it could be um before before i comment on that adam I, I maybe go back to part of your uh, original question about the exits each one of these exit options adam dramatically impact different things and that's why you, you know going back to principle one of what are you what are your drivers what do you want and once you separate your ownership role versus your management role, ownership role, meaning the investment of this equity, the management role, meaning your job, each, each one of these exits will impact the value because of the purpose of the deal. Because going back to that transaction value, when something happens, it'll impact how it's valued and why, how much money up front. So how much cash you get up front versus over time. So for example, I'm just going to completely compare and contrast to internal buyers. Like if, if you and I were, we're partners and we wanted you, I wanted to buy you out. We're going to, that's going to be, I mean, there's going to be there's the, the probability of me getting all my cash up front is going to be lower, right? There's probably going to be some sort yeah. of note or something like that. If you go sell to a strategic buyer, there's a high probability you're going to get most of your cash up front. Yeah. But think about what's different of those two. If I wanted to buy the business from you, you, I mean, I'm going to have a lot of control over the vision and you're, you're going to, hopefully you and I are aligned. And so you're going to have a good idea of what I want to do with the business because we've been involved together, et cetera. So there's a clear path of what's going to happen with the business most likely afterwards where you sell to the strategic buyer. I mean, who knows? You, they could gut the company. They could shut down your company. They could you know, change the logo. It doesn't matter. So is that important to you? I don't, I'm not one to tell anybody what to do. It's like, it's more of a saying, here's th- something to think about. In an ESOP, you can get half your money up front, generally from a bank. The seller note comes from the other half. Private equity, you're going to get a chunk of money up front. You're probably going to have to roll some equity into that uh, into that private equity firm. So you're going to have a lot at stake, and you're probably going to have a job. Are you capable of being an employee? So there's all these like things to think about as it relates to these five exit options, which is what we call those the 17 attributes of uh, the probability of these different things happening. And then going into family members, I mean, honestly, Adam, like being part of it myself and consulting with, I mean, dozens and training potentially hundreds of family businesses that the thing, the people that succeed, Adam, they run their business like a professional business. They've got governance. They know the difference between ownership roles and W-2 roles. Just because you're a family member doesn't mean you're worthy of the payroll. And then the, so the governance is important. And then Adam, the, the, the value of the business should be in the estate plan. So like me and my siblings, I had, I had two siblings, the value of that business was in our estate plan. 
I just, just because I was essentially the, the general, not the general manager, I don't know what the hell my title was, executive vice president. Um, when we sold, that didn't mean I just got more of the asset, right? Like the asset has to be split up in the estate plan accordingly, right? If I wanted to buy it, there are different arrangements. I could have bought the business at a discount if maybe my siblings got some different real estate. You know what I mean? Like there's a whole way of doing this in a way that makes sense, whether you have limited conflict and conflict and, and tension. If you separate the asset from the jobs, you have good, clear governance and management roles, and then you manage the asset differently than you manage your jobs. Right, 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 right. So that's that. That's very interesting that we put it that we focus on the estate plan because even I never thought of that. It's an asset, right? It's yeah. your Apple stock. I mean, honestly, I, I live in Minnesota, man. So like, there are nineteen Fortune five hundred companies in Minnesota. The amount of people that are executives with huge amount of stock portfolios, like. If you work at 3M and you got $5 million worth of stock, you like it, it goes into the estate plan, right? How is that any different than someone that owns their tool and die shop or their consulting firm? It's not. And like, it's honestly, Adam, it's so crazy, man. Like out of the last eight, nine years that I've been doing this and the training and all the people I've met and the amount of people that don't have clarity of the difference between their job and their asset is enormous. Like, I was the founder of my business, Arcona. We had someone that came in and he's now the CEO. You want to know why? I don't want to be. Yeah. (laughs) I don't want to be. I love doing what we're doing right now. I don't want to do client onboarding or like recruiting or all that stuff. I mean, I have a say. So on our ownership meetings, I have a say of how well is this asset doing? Are we, are we tracking to budget to actual of the strategic plan that we're hitting? And so that way I can get the distributions that I want in the, in the foreseeable future. So I, that's, that's, I have my right as an owner to talk about that. And then on our management team meetings, I'm being held accountable for sales and marketing. I don't, that's, yeah. that's what I want. And people don't have that clarity. Cause what, I mean, my dad was victim of this too. We're not victim guilty or whatever you want to use the word is I'm the founder. So I should be the head of the company. My dad, if he would have just sold copiers and stayed out of like, stayed out of the operations, we would have not had a $20 million company. We'd had a hundred million dollar companies, my guess. Yeah, not everybody is designed or it means it's not necessarily the center of their intersection, their brilliance and their passion to be the CEO. Some folks are intended, they may own the business, but they are actually destined to perform their best work being to a degree in the business. They bring somebody else to handle the on the business stuff. 100%. 100%. I've, 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 heard, I've heard this called adult supervision. <laughs> I called it adult daycare, whatever. <laughs> yeah. About the, about the same thing. But you know what's crazy, man? Like, and again, there, there, there's a couple of things to unpack here because I there's like, why don't most people do this? Well, because everything's going through their over their desk for decisions. First of all, that's stressful. Second of all, that leads to burnout. And you know what? I, you're going to get a kick out of this. So the amount of phone calls I get every week and people go, they come in, right. I want out. Out of what Adam, your job or the asset. And they're like, what do you mean? I'm like, I don't usually get people calling me like, I want out of this asset. I've got mailbox money. It's a million bucks a year and I don't have to do anything. <laughs> like, of course yeah. you don't want out. You don't want out of that. And so then it's like, do you want out of your job? Oh, I'm so burnt out. Everybody comes to me and I'm juggling cash and my vendors don't respond to me. We got inflation, we got labor issues and blah, 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 you know, supply chain issues, all these things. That means you're making all of these decisions yourself. No wonder you're exhausted. So that's a thing. And so to lead to my next point is if people have a clear written strategic plan that is rolled into their financials, and when I say financials, there are three financial statements, your income statement, your balance sheet, and your cash flow statement. You need to use all three. You need to tie them together and project all three of those statements out. And you roll your strategic plan into, into those financials. So at the end of the day, Adam, I think most entrepreneurs want to, like they want a few things answered. So I have a vision, you know, an entrepreneur has a vision for their business of what it could be. And then they, they build their strategic plan and say, okay, now, how are we going to fund that? So if I'm, how am I going to get to that revenue, gross profit, cash flow? Well, and how are we going to fund that? And how does that funding 
like if am I short on funding? Am I am I am I flush with funding? Is it going to be coming from cash flow from operations? How does the funding of that growth impact my distributions and ability to pay taxes and ability to keep funding the company? No one has clarity on this stuff from what I see because you need all three financial statements and project those forward. And it's really easy to just layer in the enterprise and equity and net proceeds of your business inside of that three statement projection. And you can actually say, okay, well, what's going to be my rate of return if I if I keep doing this in the company versus not? I mean, I think honestly, man, I don't, I don't know about you, but I, even with my current business, is what I'm doing worth it? It's all I want to know. Yeah. You know, I challenge our listeners to ask that question of yourself is what you're doing worth it. I did something and then I found myself in a three-year period where I wasn't sure where I wanted to be when I grew up. But if I hadn't gone through that, I would probably still be extremely miserable in a business that I didn't really want to be in, even though I created it. The first three businesses I created, the first three markets I entered, were it happened in all cases because somebody came to me and said, hey, I have a lot of clients I can refer to you if you'll just do this. <laughs> That's yeah. like, cool. Uh, yeah. Cool. Signed, sealed, and delivered clients. Okay. Uh, I and like while, money. And, yeah. yeah sure. <laughs> and, while, and while the clients, for the most part, were awesome, some of them are still with me today, the work left everything to be desired as far as my desire. Mm-hmm. The bottom line is it just did not match my talents, my brilliance, my passion. I felt like I was stretching to do things I didn't either feel comfortable with or feel aligned with my authentic center. And it got to the point where I looked out in the future and all I saw was a blank screen. Mm-hmm. When I fantasized about the future of my business, my ultimate hot fantasy about the business was it no longer being there. Mm. So I wouldn't have to deal with it. And I bring this up because as the listener, and this is one of those things that may be coming at you from left field, three fourths of the way through this conversation, challenge yourself and find out if there's actually anything there. Mm -hmm. Do you want to be in this business? And if not, how can you make it so you either do want to be in the business or maybe you find a way to transition out and do something else or create a new stream of revenue? These are some things to think about. Or it could be that the business is great. You're just not in the right place in the business. All the literature you hear is, do the thing that is the biggest revenue generator and outsource everything else. Well, maybe that's not for you. Maybe your role is actually in the business and your business will go a lot further when you bring somebody else to handle the on the business stuff. Think of some of your great software developers who stepped down as the CEOs of their own company and brought somebody in to run it. Now, it was still unmistakable who owned the place and who at the end of the day ran the place. But for the day-to-day, they brought in somebody whose personality brilliance and passion were more suited toward being a C-suite executive while they themselves went back in the workshop and tinkered because that's where they belonged. Yeah. And and if I can ask you a clarifying question, Adam, on your story, were you sick of your job or were you sick of the income? It was a combination of both. And the fact that I was sick of the job impacted the income uh, as I didn't feel motivated to go get it. Yeah. And understood. And if there would have been a possibility where you could have continued to make the same income, but hired those people, hired those things you did not like away, would you have liked to kept the asset? No. There you go. No, I did. I just, I just like a chain of questions. Yeah. I just didn't want it. Mm -hmm. I think what's interesting about that too, is like, um, if you, if people get, it's amazing when I watch people's anxiety just drop, we're like, if they have the clear set of financials, man, and like all, all, all these financials are like is taking your plan and rolling those into the numbers and someone else should do them. Not No, no one on the call, like listening in, unless they're a CFO should do that. Yeah. Like, like you need to take your ideas and see the financial implications of that. What is the implications today on cash flow and the future value of my company, of my ideas? That's all I want to know. And how does that impact my stream of income? 
and my ability to get what I want and have the day-to-day experience that I want. And like, there's a client that we're working with that, uh, so he's a, he's a second generation, great leader, man. Like just amazing psychology major. And he, uh, he bought the business from his dad and it was, um, it's a, uh, steel fabrication business psychology major steel fabrication. He's like, I don't want to run this business. I'm not good at it. Like he's, he's got, he's, he's more self-aware than anything. He just, he built the financials, built the strategic plan and he figured out when and how he could afford that six figure CEO. And then he made sure that he hired that person when he could continue his current cash flow without impacting his lifestyle, hired an executive recruiter, looked all over the U S figured out how to find a president, puts him in there and he's moving to Hawaii next year. And he's going to keep the income coming and he's going to manage the business based on the financials and the plan and by holding the president accountable. I'm just saying, yeah. I say that because like, that's possible if you want that. But if you don't want that because you hate the industry or you think the industry's got risk or, you know, you can't find the people like there's a lot of it depends. But like, like to your point, back to the first part of the call is like, what do you want with your day to day job, the value of the business, the stream of cash flows? I mean, like. But if you sit down and actually truly think about what you want in a multidimensional way and you have enough time and capital and opportunity, you can build a business to do whatever you want. I, I just, but like people don't sit down and think about what they want. So then it's like, I mean, I think of most of the stress that people that I see people experience is because they're wondering every day of what it, is this going to be worth it? Yeah. And that question, just so I make sure I got it right is uh, when it comes to if somebody wanted out or wants out of the business, I think you ask them, is it, is it, do you want out of the job? Or you want out of the business? Am I getting that right? One out of the job or the asset? Out one out of the job or out of the asset. I want to make sure I replace yeah, that equity. properly. Because you, you have an equity stake in this asset. And if it's not an asset, why are you doing it? Go get a job with no risk and personal guarantees for crying out loud. <laughs> it's just ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know uh, I mean? not, not there are a lot of... Not that uh, any job is really guaranteed, but yeah, going back to that point, uh, as long as you work there, you have a reasonable expectation you're going to get your paycheck on time. Yeah, you're not going. I mean, yeah, like you said, there's a, there's a lot of you know dependent situations there, but like you know, you're not signing personal guarantees and dealing with payroll and all that stuff if you work for someone else. And you know, there's another uh, another concept, Adam, I can throw to the listeners is you know, there's this whole concept of lifestyle business. And I don't think anybody has had a universal definition of what that means. So here's the intentional growth, Arcona definition of lifestyle business. A lifestyle business, regardless of how much revenue or cash flow you're making, you're solving for annual income, which means you're trying to figure out how much money you can suck out of this machine between salary, perks, and distributions. That is different than saying, I, I... want to grow a more valuable asset. Cause think about how like that fundamental question will impact every decision you have in the company. So if I wanted a, a lifestyle business and suck all the cash out, and then all of a sudden my executive comes to me and say, Hey Ryan, we're gotta, we gotta get a new ERP system. And it's 300 grand. Uh-huh. I'm going shit. Well, I don't want to do that. Cause that's going to take money out of my pocket. So you're going to avoid investing in the business versus saying, okay, I want to grow a valuable asset. I'm going to take 25% of the million dollars in distributions. The other, I'm going to pay for taxes. I'm going to roll all that money back in and invest in places like my management team, the ERP system, all those things to grow the multiple and the value of that asset. Well, that means you have less cash this year, but like as long as you have a visibility into what this company will be worth, just like private equity and everybody else that's in a professional investor in this space does, I think people have a desire to do the hard work potentially if they can see what the what the return of that effort is going to be and I don't I literally do not care what people do I just right. want them to have eyes wide open of the expectations one of the coolest things I saw in one of our trainings this gentleman's got a couple million dollar uh recruiting firm and he he came out of it and he's like you know what my takeaway is I'm going to have a lifestyle business and how that, what that does to impact his decisions, Adam, is he's like, I'm going to quit listening to my CEO peer group that uh-huh. I need to keep reinvesting in the company and buy random things and do random things because I'm going to run this as a lean machine and I'm going to pull half a million dollars on top of my 200 grand out of this company. 
And then I'm going to invest in commercial real estate and save for my retirement, but I'm not going to think it's going to randomly be worth 10 million at the end of the rainbow. I've got clear expectations. What I call is the worst is purgatory, man, where you suck all the cash out of the company. And then at the end of the day, you're like, who's going to buy this for $10 million? I'm like, well, no one. It's because like, it's the same This to make the final point. If you, someone owns a multifamily, you know, uh, uh, real estate investment and you don't do any updates for 30 years. Yeah. Like you, you, you use all of the rental cash flow for yourself. Your company's your, your company. You can tell you have to do this a lot. Your bit, your, your, <laughs> your building's not going to be worth anything because shade carpet, HVAC system with um, asbestos in it. Like it's going to take 400 grand to get this up to snuff to sell it. So like, it's just about having expectations aligned based on what you want. Well, yeah, but not so long ago, they sprayed the best asbestos on the babies so that they <laughs> would be healthier. Every time I hear settled science, I, it's like, uh, ever heard of the scientific method? Science wasn't even my thing in school, but I remember that the whole point of science is it's literally not settled. So I bring this up not to make some political point or take some cheap shot or something, but you mentioned that if you have a real estate property, you don't improve it. Eventually, you're trying to sell something that's an asbestos hazard. Well, think about what you may be putting in properties that are being built today that 20 to 30 years now may become obsolete or may become unworkable or put you upside down in devaluation or just later proven to be dangerous. You know how many houses out there have pink insulation in them? What if they find out there's something up with that fiberglass? <laughs> well, and I think to your, amen. I mean, I'm not going to disagree with anything you said. I think the point is pay attention. What are people valuing? And if you, if you, if all of a sudden there's a value detractor, fix it or don't, but have the right expectations that if you don't fix it, it's going to impact the value. I'll tell you what, like my wife, she just went from one company to another. She's a marketing manager. She was like, we're managing this whole company. They got HubSpot and they got all these great tools that are amazing. And then she goes over to this other company that's running a bunch of shitty tools. And she's like, this sucks. And so like, my point is tools and things change, right? So if you're still running an AS400, I mean, I literally had a $60 million client that we worked with. I'm like, dude, like what? Seriously? Like that AS400 is older than me. Yeah. Like, you and you like you can't just be putting a three hundred thousand dollar user interface, you know, uh-huh. updated GUI on that every single year. I think maybe to the point, Adam, is this is all about reinvesting into the business with the right expectations. And if you don't want to have the right expectations of what you're gonna get out of it. Yeah, well, it, it I mean think about also that in terms of uh of uh, people who ran Internet Explorer six, they installed it on Monday and Tuesday they were still using it. Oh, it's so what funny. one of my businesses was web design that uh, goes back to pre 2011. And this is right. This is before WordPress really became a thing. And before mobile, before mobile compatibility became a thing, they managed to figure out mobile compatibility in a relatively short period of time where basically you build one thing and it's already pre-designed to accommodate screens of all sizes. They never did fix Internet Explorer 6. And yet, how many projects got held up because the owner of the damn company was still using Internet Explorer 6? You know, it got to a point, and this is when WordPress really came into its own as a framework for websites. And then that question will come, well, how is it looking at Internet Explorer 6? And I would, uh, either me or my client's assigned project manager would tell the client, oh, we took care of your Internet Explorer 6 problem. It's, it's all good. That being, if somebody tried to visit the website using Internet Explorer 6, they got a prompt that was driven by a WordPress plugin that said, in a nice way, come on, man, really? Internet Explorer 6? Get a real browser. We're not showing you this until you until you step into the 21st century. Oh, it's so great, man. And it's, well, it's, uh, yeah, it, it, it comes back to like, what do you what do you want? What are your expectations? What do you want from your your day-to-day job and your experiences every day? And then what are your expectations financially for the income and the future value of this? I mean, growing a company, right? I mean, in America, like it's one of the most amazing opportunities of wealth creation ever if you do it the right way. 
Yeah. You know, versus like just, I mean, the amount of people that just hope that someone will wake up and then like, I mean, like people tell me about like what they want. And I'm like, you just described to me the most miserable job with the highest amount of risk ever. Why would I ever want to buy that situation from you? <laughs> yeah. Well, well, but because like, look at my lifestyle and look at how much money I'm like, I don't want to work 80 hours a week. If I'm going to buy something, I want to have the return with the right expectations. So I, I think it's uh, just like you said, like I, just understanding what tools and systems and all those things that you're using, the eight functional areas, Adam, that we were talking about. And even talking about like, you know, there's a lot of, you know, there two of the value drivers are sales and marketing, right? I mean, everybody goes to this reoccurring revenue thing. And like, I love reoccurring revenue. I mean, out of $20 million in revenue, we had 12, I think that were locked in bank finance contracts. I mean, copiers and managed IT yeah. services all rolled together. But that doesn't mean every company or industry can. But if you can document and prove that you have the, this, this is your customer journey. This is where everything hits. You know, this is how sales and marketing, my client acquisition costs, lifetime value of the customer. And these are all the tools that we use that creates a sustainable, predictable, transferable cash flow stream. Like all you're doing is being able to say, like, if someone wants your company, can you hand that baton over to them? Like you said about your businesses in the most easy, easily, the most easy fashion possible then you've created an asset that's worth something. Certainly, certainly. So uh, we have about two minutes left here before we, uh, before we wrap up. And I have one other question for you, just, uh, just uh, really, really, really quick here, just to, just to sort of bring us together here is finally, uh, overall, when it comes to mergers and acquisitions, what do you see as possibly, and I know that so much is subject to change right now, possibly the biggest driver within the next 12 months, the biggest driver change, the biggest trend. Are you saying biggest driver of what? Like deal well, flow? Well, let's, let's say maybe demand? the biggest trend, the thing that we expect to see happen based on your experience. Um, there, I would suggest people could check out, I, we're now doing a quarterly economic and merging acquisition update on the podcast where I interview okay. ITR economics and GF data who are supplying the actual data points that you're talking about. Um, if I were to give you just my kind of layperson's overview, it's it, there's a lot of yes, there's economic issues. The interest rates just got uh, raised again, which interest uh-huh. rates have a direct correlation towards suppressing value because you, I mean, the higher it costs to borrow money, the less ca- I mean, the more cash flow you need to cover that debt, which means that you're gonna have to pay a little bit less. So yeah, there is value compression that's definitely going to probably have some impact. I don't, I don't have any magic ball or crystal ball of like, Hey, it's going to be one or two turns on the, on EBITDA or a a reduction in the multiple. But so like, yeah, there's a lot of things happening, but like people, investors, Adam need to deploy their money to make a return period. The private equity industry has raised $2 trillion, which that means that it's $2 trillion is sitting in the coffers and the bank accounts of these private equity firms. And they have a prudent and fiduciary obligation to deploy that, which means buy companies and then grow those for a rate of return for their investors. So the $2 trillion yeah. is already there, man. So like, yes, all this stuff is happening with interest rates and the war in Ukraine and labor labor issues and supply chain issues. But that doesn't, I mean, that doesn't change the fact that $2 trillion is there that needs to be put to use. So I think you're going to start, I mean, that that's not going to happen, right? There's not going to be some cliff that gets dropped off with private private companies because of that factor. And a lot of companies, man, like other companies that they have to acquire it for growth right now. Yeah. And so like, I, it's cross currents doesn't do justice for all the crap that's going on right now. <laughs> the amount of people that are like, I'm exhausted. I'm like, trust me, me too, man. Like, like yeah. but um. You know, this goes back to what we were talking about at the beginning is if you can see, you know, try your best to see into the future, to see that story that you want to tell and put that into financial, your financials to see what is the actual financial implication of this, you're going to be better off weathering the storm because it's like a tugboat that goes through the the waves. I mean, you still got to keep going. Right, right. Absolutely. So we are indeed at the top of the hour now. So what I want to do is, I want to extend on your behalf an invitation to our listeners. And this is 
the Intentional Growth Financial Assessment. It's a short survey that helps business owners clarify their path toward a more valuable business using their financials. And for those who have enjoyed uh, what we are covering here in this conversation, this is definitely for you. If you simply go to the website, which is arcona.io, spelled A-R-K-O-N-A.io, you're going to see a big green button that says Intentional Growth Financial Assessment. That's where you go to take the quiz and get your score. It, uh, I believe it takes, it's, uh, it only takes like five to 10 minutes. It's about 20, give or take, simple questions. And there's a little video uh, from Ryan there. It explains how it works. So again, go to arcona.io and discover more there. And with that, Ryan Tansom, thank you so much for being with us here today. It's been an honor and believe me in education. Thank you so much, Adam, for having me. I appreciate it. And just as a note, people don't need to plug in their financials or anything like that. And there's a bunch of videos of what good looks like at the bottom or at the back. Right. So it's not, it's not a, it's not a cavity search or anything, <laughs> but thank okay. you. So, thank you so much, Adam. For having okay. Me what, 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 when I take it, I'm going to pretend I'm a trillionaire. <laughs> there All you right. go. And then it's, you know, it's going to have confetti that rains from the, <laughs> rains from the air. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. So uh, listeners go do that now. We trust you enjoyed today's episode of the Business Creators Radio Show. Check out our previous and upcoming episodes on our website at www.businesscreatorsradioshow.com. While you're there, be sure to subscribe via your favorite network so you get fresh episodes delivered straight to you. Until next time, have a great day. Take care.